John chapter 2 is where we'll be. Once you find it, go ahead and stand out of respect for God's word. And we'll read just a couple of verses. Won't be a long reading this morning. Um, last week we were in the first, well actually last week we were in the temple with Jesus Christ as he drove out the money changers and he drove out the animals and he drove out those selling the animals for the temple sacrifice um, because they had turned his father's house into a house of merchandise. That it was no longer about the father's house, it was about uh, personal gain for them and it wasn't the right way to treat the temple, it wasn't the right way to treat the father's house. And Jesus went in and with very controlled anger, deliberate anger, righteous anger, he drove them out of the temple. And the Father's house is, should be about the Father. It should be about God. It should not be about other things, lesser things. And, and yet there are two verses at the end of this chapter uh, that we didn't cover last week, but really deserve their own message. And so today I'll be looking at these last two verses of John chapter 2, it says in verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And it's a sobering thought this morning, and yet one that we must all come to face with, and that is this, uh, that we can say we believe, but Jesus knows. And we must be confronted with this thought. And the reason you might say, well, why would, why, I mean, we're out on a cold, blustery Sunday morning. You ought to preach about something that's encouraging and something that gets us excited and brings a smile to our face. And, and I could do that. I could. But the truth is, we can either let judgment begin at the house of God and take care of business now, or we will stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment and wish that somebody had given us a message like this. And this morning, uh, you, it, really the result of this is joy. Um, but as we get there, there's some self-examination required. And I hope that you'll pay attention this morning. Because there's two categories of people in every room. And there's those, there are those that superficially believe. And those that sincerely believe. And I hope and pray that you are in... That second category. The title this morning is this, When Miracles Aren't Enough. See, miracles are great, but miracles aren't everything. And we'll look at that this morning. Let's pray and ask the Father to meet with us. Lord, we need you. God, we need your presence. We need your Holy Spirit to illuminate and convict and work. It cannot just be my words or else we have just met for and, and killed time, Lord. Uh, no, we need your Spirit to be moving we need your Holy Spirit to convict, to illuminate, and to work in our hearts. God, we need you. We need your presence. We pray that you bless the reading of your word and help us to understand and hear it on a spiritual level. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think we'd all agree that trust is hard to come by these days, isn't it? Uh, no one trusts 
anyone anymore. And, and the reason is because of all of the ways that people try to take advantage of people these days. Uh, if you have an email address, then you know how, how many phishing emails or scam emails come into your inbox. If you have a cell phone, then you know how many phishing, P-H, phishing uh, texts that you get. They're not genuine texts. How many phone calls you get. They're not genuine phone calls. They're not somebody really trying to do you good. It's somebody trying to take advantage of you. Um, there are people pretending to be somebody else online. You can be whoever you want to be. And, and, and you, we don't know if that's genuine or not. Uh, all the fine print in a sale and in a contract. I mean, people are trying. Uh, this is really encouraging, isn't it? People are trying to take advantage of you, in case you didn't know. There are a lot of, there's a lot of insincerity out there. You can hardly take anything at face value anymore. It's hard to trust and even uh, it's hard to believe that something is genuine and real and what it, what it claims to be. And if you're a Cowboys or Vikings fan, you know this really well. Last weekend taught us. You know, not everything is this way. I don't want you to, to think that there's nothing genuine out there, that there's nobody out there that has your best interest in mind, but there is enough out there that it makes you not want to trust anyone. It's easy to become skeptical of what anybody says these days. But I, I want to turn this then to on a spiritual head and consider what if this took place uh, in a church that skepticism that we all with wisdom ought to have when it comes to dealing with the world. What if that skepticism was present in a church like this? Let's just, uh, for a scenario's sake, let me give you a scenario that, that, let's say we have a church service. It's not that far out of the question. We're doing one right now. So if you can use your imagination, imagine we're having a church service just like this one, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. The gospel being his death, burial, and resurrection. And not only that, all those witnesses that saw him alive because he really is alive. Jesus is alive and he proves that he has victory over, the, over death and, and sin. And he is alive right now. So the gospel gets preached. The message is clear. And at the end of the message, let's just suppose that someone responds... And this is what we do in Baptist churches quite often. We have what's called an invitation. And the invitation is simply an opportunity for you to make a decision about the truth that you've heard. And the reason we do that is because truth should lead you to a choice. Truth is not just something you hear and enjoy. It should lead you to a, to a choice. So listen, I know it's uncomfortable when we have an invitation and we invite people to come forward or invite you to make a decision. Um, but that really ought to be the end of truth. If all you ever do is hear and you never do, the Bible says you're a deceiver or you've deceived yourself. And you must do something with what you hear. So that's the reason we do that. So let's say that we have our invitation at the end of the service. The gospel has been presented. And someone responds. They come forward. And they say, I'd like to respond to this. And I say, why did you come forward? And, and in a conversation right down here, they say this. I believe in Jesus. And, and we would all, what if I then, we all ought to say amen. If somebody comes forward and says that. But what if I replied with this? Well, maybe. But I'm not sure he believes in you. Now, that would probably make some people upset. 
That would not be well received. Why? Well, first, because we want to believe that every person that comes to Christ is sincere. I, believe, I, I like to believe that. I know not everyone that says that is sincere, but in my heart of hearts, I want to believe that they're sincere. Second, because our culture, the reason it wouldn't be good for me to do that is because our culture really labors on the fact that only God can judge. You know, everyone's favorite verse in our culture is judge not, lest ye be judged. So uh, that, that's a big part of our mantra and it seems like it's a popular uh, angle that people take, even though that's not necessarily the context, that's a different message. But especially in matters of spirituality, we're told you don't judge. Another reason it wouldn't be good for me to respond that way would be that, it, it, that someone's sincerity when it comes to their spiritual life is something I genuinely cannot know. I, I mean, I might have an idea based on fruit because the Bible does say Jesus said by, your fruit, by their fruits ye shall know them. It's possible to look at someone's life, but it's not my job to do that. It's really more it's between them and the Lord. And I can maybe come to some conclusion, but I don't know someone's relationship with God. And that truth, that idea that Jesus knows and that individual knows is actually brought up here in John chapter 2 by Jesus himself. So let me set the scene for you. Jesus has just gone, has gone to Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover. And last week, again, we saw him driving out the money changers and driving out those selling the animals, they had turned a sacred place into a market. And everyone that was there, I, I imagine almost everyone at the Passover, they were either there in the temple and saw Jesus do that, or word got around and they heard about this man from Nazareth that went into the temple and cleaned house. But Jesus, though, wasn't only in Jerusalem for that one afternoon. He wasn't just there for that one event. If he followed the pattern that many Jews did during the Feast of the Passover, which, by the way, was the largest, the largest of the feasts, it's when everyone that could travel to Jerusalem, um, if he followed the pattern that many of them did, then they, he was likely in Jerusalem for over a week. He didn't just go for that one day when he drove them out of the temple. So we shouldn't assume, listen, we shouldn't assume that the only thing Jesus did during the Passover was kick people out of the temple. We're not given details, but the more you read, it becomes clear that Jesus performed miracles while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover. And if, if you think, well, why didn't John tell us the miracles that he did? Why didn't he mention them here? Well, later in his book, in John 21, John wrote this, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, that the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So we know already that John didn't give us all the works. He didn't give us all the miracles. He didn't give us all the amazing things that Jesus did. He selectively chose miracles to include, starting with the Jesus turning the water into wine earlier in this chapter. But he must have excluded some that took place at the Passover. You say, well, how do you come to, to, to that conclusion? Well, just look a few verses later in John 3, verse 2. We'll begin in verse 1. So this follows the Passover, John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night 
and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So the only miracle recorded to this point was the water turned to wine. But Nicodemus says we know that, that these miracles, plural. So obviously Nicodemus, it seems like he had been an eyewitness to some of the things that Jesus had done. And as if that's not enough, look over in John chapter 4, verse 45. John chapter 4, verse 45, just a couple of chapters later, it says, Then when he was come into Galilee... The Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Well, the only feast that had taken place was these miracles. So it says that he did miracles. They believed because of the miracles. Nicodemus is thinking about the miracles. The Galileans are thinking about the miracles. It's obvious that his miracles made an impact while he was at the feast of the Passover. We don't know what they were, but it's clear that many had seen them. I mean, two million, they say that two million people went to the feast of the Passover. Um, some, pre, some say that it could be up to that many. There were people all over the place. And I'm not speculating when I say that Jesus went and did works in people's lives. I, he likely healed the sick. He likely helped a lame man to walk. He like, likely brought, a, brought sight to a blind man. And with all of these eyeballs then on such a big crowd and everyone around you know that word started to spread and you know that people were talking about him and they're saying he must be the Messiah uh, did you see what he did someone says I, I watched Jesus heal a lame man and he got up and started running around uh, somebody else says my cousin's nephew was perhaps was born blind and, and Jesus walked up to him and he gave him sight and now he can see and you know if it was in today's uh, today then videos would be going viral of miracles being done by Jesus Christ and people would be saying you can't believe everything you see on the internet but Nicodemus was there and people were there the Galileans were there and they saw him do these things and I'm telling you it got them excited the debate and the talk was happening. And there are people that are saying he must be the son of God. Nicodemus saying he must be. You must be the son of God. Because only the son of God can do these things. He, you've got to be the one. People were saying that. And ver, look again at verse 23, 23. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name. So we might assume that they placed their faith in Christ and they were saved. And to that we would say amen. And praise the Lord. But we, I mean we would say this many were saved. That's amazing. How incredible. But we have to be careful. Because the word that we get believed there from. In the feast day many believed. It comes from the Greek word pistuo. And it means we, what we assume it means. It means that, that to be convinced that what someone says is true, that you believe them. That's exactly what we would think it means. And here comes Jesus claiming to be Messiah, claiming to be the Son of God. And they, only, they watch the miracles. They see him heal. They're getting excited. They can't just ignore what he's doing. So they were believing based on the miracles. They were saying these things. They saw these. And they intellectually agreed to the identity of Jesus Christ. And one of these believers might have said, I know based on my head and what I'm seeing with my eyes that he has to be the son of God 
Because look what he's doing. See, they were super, and this isn't me speculating. This is Jesus' own testimony. They were superficially convinced that Jesus was the Messiah based on miracles. But there's something missing here. See, the word pistuo, it goes deeper than just accepting by intellectually accepting something to be true. It actually also means to entrust something to someone. See, it doesn't just stop at belief. It, it goes into uh, uh, the next step, which would be a choice. See, there's a difference between believing someone and entrusting them with something. Uh, for instance, uh, let's just say that there's a couple in our church and you've got three children ages 12 and 9 and 6, we'll say. And there's in, on a, some certain night, uh, this, then you and your wife, this couple and, and wife want to go out. Uh, they want to go out for a, a, a burger at the downtown burger battle, which, by the way, is going on in downtown Sioux Falls right now. You might want to go check it out if you like burgers. So we're going this week. So you want to go on a date, you want to go try this burger, and, and one of the restaurants downtown has a root beer float burger. I'm not really sure that sounds very good, but, I mean, let me know if it is. But you go downtown, and, and you're, you want to go downtown and eat a burger, and, and so you call all the babysitters that you know, and none of them are available. And you've got, again, like I said, you've got a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 6-year-old, and the 12-year-old is a responsible and obedient child. The nine and the six-year-old, they're not as mature as the 12-year-old, obviously, but they're good kids. They get along. They obey. I mean, the, there's even uh, an iPad at home that they can communicate with you should they need to. So we might then say, okay, do you then, do you trust your children to just stay home alone? And parents might, at that point, you might say, yeah, we, yeah, we trust our kids. We trust them. I think it would be fine if we go eat a burger and leave them at home by themselves to eat mac and cheese. Because that's like gourmet for them anyway. I think it would be fine. Yeah. Okay. So go on a date and leave your kids alone. You say, I just don't think we can yet. See, there's a difference between believing... That your children are old enough to stay home alone and watch themselves and actually trusting them to do it. Uh, you know, I could say, um, you know, Brother Sam, I could say, you know, when you're at work, you do these things in, called trust falls. Right? And so, you know, Brother Sam, um, I, I say, well, you know, we're going to have, we're going to just see how much you really trust the guys in the youth group. So I say, Brother Sam, go ahead and come up here, Brother Sam. James, come here. <laughs> so, so uh, okay, so no, you got to stand behind him, okay? It's a trust fall. Okay, get your hands ready. Are you ready? Okay, so do we, are we on this camera right here? We need to be. Okay, <laughs> zoomed in? Okay. So, Brother Sam, do you believe that James is physically capable of catching you? Sure. Yeah. All right, so go. Okay, thank you for that reaction because it proves my point. There's a difference in belief 
that James is physically capable of catching Brother Sam. And, there, and the, then though there's a difference between that and actually trusting him to go through with it. So, all right, on the count of three. Just kidding. No, go ahead. No, sit down. Do you see there's a difference? See, there's a difference. We can intellectually acknowledge, we can intellectually assent to something. We can agree that something is true and we can say, I believe it. But until you entrust in a decision with a choice to place your trust in it and actually take a step of faith. Now, I'm not saying that you have to work for it. I'm saying you simply have to choose it. Belief is more than just an intellectual assent or acknowledging or agreeing to something. It is taking a step of trust. And the Jews certainly believed in Jesus based on the miracles. They believed that he spoke the truth. They believed that he was the son of God. But they hadn't placed their trust in him. They hadn't taken the step of faith to entrust eternal life to him. And you can say all day that you believe a chair will hold you, but it's not faith until you sit down. You can say all day that you believe airplanes are safe, but until you get on one and it goes up in the air, then it's not true faith. And to drive home the point this morning, John actually uses a word play in verses 23 and 24. Look at this again. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Because he knew all men. You know the word for commit in verse 24. Is the same exact word pistuo that is used in verse 23. When it said believed. See they claimed to believe in him. But they hadn't entrusted eternal life to him. They hadn't made a choice. And because they lacked saving faith. Listen Jesus didn't trust their profession in return. They believed in Jesus. But Jesus did not believe in them. Oh, I believe the Son of God. I believe that's Jesus. Look at what he's doing. Okay, do you believe enough? Listen, do you believe enough to trust in him for eternal life? Do you believe enough to turn from your old Jewish religious system that you've been trusting to save you your whole life to say that's not good enough. I now trust Jesus Christ alone. You say you believe him, but are you willing to trust, no longer trust your old ways, and now trust the new way, which is Jesus, and him alone, place your faith in him as the only source of salvation? Do you really trust enough to do that? See, they had a superficial response to Christ's miracles, but Jesus had supernatural insight into their hearts. See, here's the, the most important takeaway from the text. It, this, it's this. The primary point I believe Jesus, John is trying to make. You can say you know Jesus, but Jesus really knows. You can say you know Jesus, but Jesus really knows. Jesus Christ knows what's in the heart of every person. In John 1, he'd walked up to Nathanael and said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Behold, this, this man in whom is no guile. And you say, how would he know who Nathanael is if they had never met? Because Jesus knows every person. 
In John 4, he, he saw a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and he started telling her about her past and telling her about all the things that she had done. And she goes back into the city and says, Behold, this man that told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ? You might say, how would Jesus know? Because Jesus knows every person. In Luke 19, as he walked by with a crowd, he looked up in a little tree, a sycamore tree, and there's a little man there named Zacchaeus, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus came down, and they went to his house, and you say, how does he know who Zacchaeus is? Because he knows every person. He knows hearts. He knows there's not a man, there's not a woman or a child in this world that Jesus doesn't know. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. God knows every single thing about you. He knows every thought you've ever thought. He knows every word that you've ever said. He knows every attitude you've ever had. And depending on your present condition, that's either a great comfort or it's a great conviction. Not one of your attitudes or thoughts or words gets missed in heaven. And the most important thing he knows about you is this. He knows if you've genuinely trusted him for eternal life or if you only have superficial faith. See, here's the truth, number one, that I want you to take away from this, is this, the Jews had belief based on emotion. The Jews had belief based on emotion. They were emotional. They were excited. It was the Passover. There are all kinds of people there. And Jesus shows up and he starts performing miracles. And some of them have benefited from the miracles. And then the talk begins. Well, he's the Messiah. He's got to be the son of God. He's going to deliver us from the Romans. Aren't you excited? Freedom is at hand. Let's embrace him. They're excited. They believed. But it was superficial and Jesus knew it. See, they were caught up in the big crowds, and they were caught up in the excitement. They were caught up in the signs. They were caught up in the wonders. They were caught up in the superficial. And the truth is, this is human nature. When things are good, God is popular. I mean, when an NFL player wins a Super Bowl, he gives credit to God. When actors win Oscars, sometimes they give credit to God. At Christmas and Easter, people show up for Jesus because his highlight reels include his birth and his resurrection. When there's a revival meeting, people show up. When there's a big day, people come. People that you don't see ever throughout the rest of the year and they're there when things are big. Teens, we come back from camp and we're excited. Everyone's pumped up. The truth is, people are all about Jesus on the mountaintops. They're all about Jesus when things are good. When Jesus was feeding them. Jesus is healing them. When he first came on the scene, they embraced him. The people were excited. He was popular, very popular his first year. Thousands followed him. He preached to thousands. They were all in. They loved his teaching. They really loved the miracles. They were all on board. And one man said this, the human heart is attracted to the sensational. They loved the positives. But then, 
he started preaching and teaching about hard things, about persecution, about suffering, about how being a disciple means you say no to yourself so you can follow him. And then that they'll have to bear a cross and live life for Jesus, not self. In John 6, we're going to get to that at some point. He preaches some difficult truths. And it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Why? Because difficulties are revealers. See, when someone only has an intellectual belief in Christ, the first sign of trouble will weed them out. And they were all about Jesus on the mountaintop. They were all about Jesus when he performed miracles, but the excitement disappeared when he started making demands. Friends, it's not enough to say that you believe in Jesus. And I don't want to, I don't want to take somebody to take that one clip and say, he's a heretic. But, it's, but according to this passage, there were those that believed in his name and Jesus knew they weren't saved. James 2 says the devils believe and tremble. And if your belief is based on emotion, it won't last. Emotional response is not genuine faith. And you might say, well, but John's purpose for giving the miracles was so that we would know that this is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And it's true, but for many people, listen, the belief stopped at the miracles. See, when it comes to salvation, miracles are not enough. Miracles stimulate. They get people excited. They get us pumped up. They draw crowds. But when Jesus started preaching truth, they didn't want to hear they walked away. See, truth number one is there, the Jews had belief based on emotion. But truth number two is this. Genuine belief is based on conviction, not emotion. See, responding to his works will leave you emotional and stirred. Because you're like, wow, did you see what he did? That's incredible. Responding to his miracles will leave you excited. But listen, responding to his word will leave you convicted. Genuine faith might lead to emotion, but it starts with conviction. In John 16 through 18, John talks about conviction and the Holy Spirit. And the idea of conviction is this. Listen, I want you to get the difference, so pay attention. The, the idea of conviction is when you get a glimpse of God's holiness and God's purity and God's beauty. And then you compare yourself to God and you become aware of just how sinful you are before a holy God. Isaiah saw God and said, behold, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Joseph, when tempted, said, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? David in Psalm 51 wrote, against thee and thee only have I sinned. See, listen, conviction is when the Holy Spirit convinces you of your sin. He represents righteous judgment of God. And then you re recognize your guilt and you acknowledge your need to repent of your sin. That's conviction. And if you respond to the miracles, the problem is you never deal with your sin. Emotion is response to miracles. Conviction is response to the message of the gospel. Emotional belief embraces the works of Jesus. But genuine belief is a response to the words of Jesus. Emotional belief embraces the works of Jesus. But genuine belief responds to the words of Jesus. 
See, Jesus knew miracles weren't enough for salvation. And they might lead you to acknowledge the Savior, but salvation comes when you submit to the message of the gospel. The works of Christ might draw you, but the words of Christ will convince you. In chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus, it says that Jesus came. And I want to be careful here because we talked about grace already. It's a good thing. But it says that Jesus came with grace and truth. You say, well, what's the difference between grace and truth? Well, people love grace. It's easy to stand up here and sing about grace because grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve and he overflows with gifts and does, goes beyond and does so much for us. Who wouldn't want to sing about God's grace? It's amazing grace. We, people love grace. When someone gives you a gift or shows you kindness, you like it. That's grace. Healing at the temple, that was grace. Feeding people, that's grace. Bring it on. Miracles, that's grace. I could sing about this all day. But then the truth was preached. And the same people who were all about God's grace suddenly were questioning Jesus, saying, listen, I'll take the miracles, but I don't like the message. See, they loved grace, but they didn't love the gospel. And here's the question today that you must be confronted with. Is your faith, is it based on emotion or conviction? If you claim to be saved, was that moment of salvation based on emotion of some experience or truth that you heard? Because Romans 1.17 says very clearly, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Listen, saving faith is a choice based on conviction in response to truth. Miracles alone can't produce saving faith. Miracles draw us to the Savior. They draw us to the Son of God. The grace of God draws us to Him. But we must at some point hear the truth, be convicted, and respond to the truth in order to be saved. Our salvation must be based on a message of truth. What message? Well, the gospel message. The gospel message is this, that sin is your problem. And God is a holy God who has never sinned. And we are all sinners, Romans 3, we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Sin is your problem. And as a holy, sinless God, he can't simply overlook our sin. And, and none of us could hold to the standard that God holds to. He lives in heaven. He's holy. I am a sinner. I've broken God's law. How then could I ever dwell in the place with him forever where he is holy and sinless. Truth is, on my own, I have nothing that I can pay. I have nothing I can do to overcome it. I am a, simply a sinner with no hope and stand guilty before God. So sin is our problem. Hell is our consequence. We all deserve to be separated forever from that holy God. We're not good enough for God. We're not good enough for heaven. We're not sinless enough to enter there and live there forever with him. We deserve eternal separation from a holy God. And if I stopped there, then you would say that's really bad news. But the gospel means good news. So here's the good news. See, he, sin is our problem. Hell is our consequence. But the good news is this. Jesus Christ is our answer. 
See, God loves you and he loves me so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. He paid a debt that we owed and he wants to apply the payment of the cross to your sin account. It's the greatest miracle of all, that a holy God could love me, that a holy God could love you, that he could love sinners enough to send his son to die on a cross in our place and be buried and rise again the third day. Listen, you talk about miracles, it's miraculous that he could love me to that degree, but he does. But here's the thing. It's not enough to simply know the gospel message. That gospel message then, the Holy Spirit takes that message and he pricks your heart and he convicts you of your sin and he lets you know that your sin is is terrible before God and it's an affront to God, it's an offense to God and unless something is done with your sin, then you can never enter heaven. But see, that's where your choice comes in. The gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and rather than simply agree with everything that I say, remember the other definition of belief is to entrust that you entrust something to someone and this is where salvation takes place when you make a choice based on what you know what the Holy Spirit has convicted you of you make a choice to say I choose Jesus I turn from the old ways, all the other things I used to trust to get me to heaven. And I look to Jesus alone, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by him. It is a choice that he gives you to make. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You simply have to choose now that you've heard Don't just agree. Make a choice. Trust Christ to take care of your sin problem. Choose to trust him for eternal life. Belief is not just agreeing. Belief is choosing. So here's how I want to start wrapping this up. Listen, Jesus knows. He already knows. He says, It needed not that any man should should testify of man... For he knew what was in man. He knows. And he knows if it's real or not for you. He knows if your salvation was based on emotion or conviction. He knows if you've truly trusted him. He knows the ones who say they believe and really don't. But he also knows the ones who have placed their trust in him. See, the first thing is this. Jesus knows. The second is this. Do you know? See, the most important thing that you can do with the gospel message and the Holy Spirit's conviction is consider the nature of your belief. Is it genuine? If it's based on some emotional experience or something that you simply kind of hope happened or something spectacular, Jesus may not be as impressed with your faith as you think he should be. See, anyone can respond to the works of Christ. But the genuinely saved respond to the words of Christ. Jesus knows. Do you know? Third, you can know. See, John, the same writer of the gospel, wrote in 1 John 5, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You can know. Jesus already knows. Whether or not you know, 
The truth is you can know. You can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you've truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You can have confidence. How? Well, respond to his word. It doesn't have to be emotional, although it may become emotional. It doesn't have to be based on something spectacular, although you'll feel spectacularly relieved. It doesn't require emotion, but it does require conviction. The word is preached, you're convicted of your sins, and then you genuinely trust Christ to pay for your sins and give you eternal life. Verse 24 and 25 make it clear. Jesus knows all of us. You can trick everyone here. But the one that counts knows. The one that you'll answer to in heaven one day. He knows. So my encouragement to you today is this. Get it settled before you stand before him in judgment. Let judgment begin at the house of God. You say, that's a really hard thing to do. I mean, I'm private about my religion and my spiritual life, and I understand that. But someday you will stand before Jesus Christ, and he already knows. So why not take care of it now? Why not place your faith in the finished work of salvation, Jesus Christ on the cross? Why not do it right now? Why spend your life pretending to be a believer? It doesn't matter if what I or anyone else thinks, and it doesn't matter if it's embarrassing. The most important thing is that you get this settled with Jesus Christ because he already knows. So why go on in doubt? Why continue to pretend, respond to the word, respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Jesus knows. Do you know? You can know. Superficially responding to miracles isn't enough. Sincerely responding to the gospel is. Have you done this? Have you chosen this? Would you choose this this morning? To the Christian, I say this. Jesus knows your heart. And he knows how genuine your relationship is with him. And he knows if you've just been going through the motions. And you may be saved, but only Jesus knows how, how real your walk is. You say, you know Jesus, but Jesus knows your heart. So to you, I also say, stop pretending. He already knows. And I point all of us, saved and unsaved, to the lost and believer alike. I point all of us to Matthew 7, where in Jesus' words, he said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And look what they, and think about what they're trusting in. And in thy name have done many wonderful works? Miracles. Jesus will say, miracles aren't enough. He says, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. See, recognize, he won't say, you never knew me. Because they think they do know him. They know of him. They thought they knew him. They, the people in the temple, they watched him perform miracles. They thought they knew him. He doesn't say, you never knew me. No, he says, I never knew you. And what's the difference? Well, he said, depart from me. 
ye that work iniquity. See, the difference is those that are genuinely saved have dealt with their sin. Those that are genuinely saved, the, the condition on having faith in Jesus Christ is their sin. Not the miracles, not all the good stuff, but the fact that sin has driven me to know that I must place my trust in Jesus or I have no hope in heaven. That's why he says to those that trust in other things, ye depart from me ye that work iniquity. You're still in your sin. So listen, miracles draw you to Christ, but they don't deal with your sin. Conviction of sin must be present for genuine faith to be experienced. Sin must be dealt with, folks. Not just emotion, conviction. Jesus knows if it's real or not. Superficial faith can't fool Jesus. So stop pretending and make it real. Listen, Jesus knows. Do you know? You can know. It's a choice you must make this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? The message of the gospel has been preached this morning. And for some of you, it might be confusing a little bit, but there's some heaviness on your heart. There's conviction. That's conviction. That's the Holy Spirit, and he is working on your heart. He's convicting you of your sin. He's letting you know that there is something between you and him. And if something takes care of it, then you don't really have much hope. But he already did. Jesus already died. But listen, he's waiting to apply the payment to your sin. And it all depends on whether or not you choose. How many of you here would say, I know that I'm saved. But there are times where it's not real for me. My walk, my relationship isn't real. And I, I need to get that right. Would you say that this morning? Would you raise a hand and say, I know I'm saved. But there are times when my walk isn't real. And I, I want to make it genuine. So I see those hands all over the room. Thank you for that. How many of you in here would say, no, I, I don't know that I know. I don't know that my that I have placed my faith in Jesus. I don't know that I've actually trusted him for salvation. I'm not sure. No one's looking around, but would you be willing to simply raise your hand and I'll pray for you this morning and just ask God to give you some real insight and, and help you to know what steps to take next. But would you say, I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know that I have eternal life. Would you just raise your hand? I see that hand to my right. You can put it down. Thank you. Anybody else looking all across the room? Anybody else that raise your hand and say, I'm just not sure. Anybody else? Okay, so for the most part, then, we are Christians. We're saved people here. We, we know. But, but if there are times in your life that you're not what you, you're supposed to be, let me just remind you, Jesus knows. And he sees. And if there's something in your life that you need to get right with him so that you can live a genuine faith, then maybe this morning is the time to get that figured out. To those that maybe you don't know that you're saved, we'll have people up front that would be more than happy to take you to a room, show you from God's word in private how you can know that you'll spend eternity in heaven. Would you be willing to do that this morning? Let's stand together. We'll have a verse of invitation. I've already explained invitation. I'll pray and then the altars will be open. 
you have an opportunity to respond. I say don't wait. Let's get things taken care of this morning so that you, your faith in Christ is genuine. It's genuine enough for him to say, I believe in that faith. That's faith that is genuine. Is your faith in Christ, is it real? Miracles aren't enough. You must deal with sin to have genuine faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us this morning to be uh, sincere about the message. I know it's a gospel message, but I do believe it applies to everyone here. And that each of us can go through times when we think we're something that we're not. We pretend to be something that we aren't. And I pray that you'd help everyone here to decide, I want genuine faith to be lived out in my life. To those that may not be saved this morning, would you help us, Lord, to be willing to humble ourselves and admit our sin and admit there is no way to heaven except through the finished work of Jesus Christ. God, have your will and way in the invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.